All right, we're ready to hear argument in our next case, uh, Bledsoe versus Cook. Um, I'm sorry, not Bledsoe versus, yeah, it is. All right, Mr. Bledsoe, go ahead. Good morning, Your Honor. May it please the Court, my name is Joseph Bledsoe, and I am the Chapter 13 trustee in the bankruptcy case of Robert and Cheryl Cook, no relation to opposing counsel. Um, the issue in this case is whether or not the bankruptcy court erred when it determined that it had no discretion to consider the reasonableness of the debtor's average contractual monthly mortgage payments. In this case, the debtors filed a Chapter 13. They completed the means test because they are above median income debtors. The means test would have given them a mortgage deduction of about $1,100, give or take. I think a few dollars short of that. They took a deduction on the means test for about $2,200, $22 plus some change, which was more than twice the amount. Um, the trustee objected. My argument was not that the debtors are not allowed that deduction, but that to the extent the debtors want to take a deduction that is over and above what the means test allowed, they have to show reasonableness. Uh, and I think that's fairly clear from the, the at least my interpretation of the statute. Can I just ask you, I mean, this seems like a totally reasonable argument, and I think on balance I can understand why you'd want to give bankruptcy courts more discretion rather than less. But why isn't that just antithetical to the Bankruptcy Abuse Protection and Consumer Act? I understand why bankruptcy courts might not like having less discretion. I understand why trustees might not like bankruptcy courts having less discretion. But isn't this a statute that by its very nature takes discretion away from bankruptcy court judges? Well, I think it does take some discretion away, but not totally. And in terms of the, the that specific deduction, if you read 707B2A2, uh, and it talks about the debtors what they're allowed in terms of their deductions. When it comes to the mortgage deduction, it says the debtor shall be allowed a monthly expense in the amount specified. So the way that the bankruptcy code breaks it down, you have the, the, the first, and I'm going to adopt Mr. Cook's uh, terminology here. You have this, the first clause, clause right. two. And that deals with the national standards, the local standards, and the other necessary expenses. And then clause two has several different sub-clauses. Then you have clause three and you have clause four. Clause 2 specifically deals with the mortgage deduction, and it says the debtor shall be allowed a mortgage deduction in the amount specified. It doesn't say in the amount specified unless the debtor wants to claim something else. And if you look at the structure of it, the the way you have the national standards, which is the mortgage expenses and the utilities expenses. You have the local standards, which is the vehicle operation and ownership expenses. The other necessary expenses the IRS kind of divides those expenses into two categories. You have other necessary expenses and you have other conditional expenses. Now, the rest of, uh, most of the rest of uh, Clause 2 and Clause 3 uh, and Clause 4, they kind of incorporate what the IRS would consider under those other expenses, whether they're necessary or conditional. So, for example, if you've got Clause uh, 3 that talks about can I ask you, under your reading, what is the point of Clause 3 in this situation? What work does Clause 3 do? I think Clause 3 is a formula. I don't, I don't think that the debtor is not going to be uh, entitled to any secured debt deductions. I think that there are times when a debtor could be allowed a secured debt deduction. But not the full amount of the secured debt? It depends on what the debt is. Um, it just, I mean, I guess another way to think about this, it seems strange to me. Admittedly, it's been a while since I took secured transactions or bankruptcy, but I mean... The fundamental principle is that secured creditors get paid in full. I mean, like, telling me that I can take a mortgage interest deduction for half of the amount of my mortgage is just another way of saying I can't pay my mortgage, is just another way of saying I can't stay in my house, because my secured mortgage company is not going to accept 
50% of my mortgage payment as full payment. And what they're going to do is they're going to exercise their security interest, right? That's right. So that's telling me that I can't actually stay in my house. Well, not necessarily. Um, I would say, first of all, I would say if Clause 3 is a standalone provision which allows the debtor to deduct secured uh, debts, regardless of what kind they are, then (laughs) you have a stronger argument, except that this particular secured debt is already addressed in Clause 2. It's already addressed under the local standards. And it says... But I don't see how that's responding to my view that in this view, you're actually telling debtors they can't stay in their house because... Let's just take these debtors. Your your position is these debtors can deduct half of their monthly mortgage payment, which means the bank is going to foreclose, which means they can't stay in their house, right? No, my, my position would be, I think, better stated that the debtors can stay in the house and they can maintain that mortgage payment. But how? The bankruptcy court can make a finding that to the extent the, the mortgage payments exceed the amount of the IRS allowance, that's nevertheless reasonable. And in a lot of cases, that's going to be the case. Uh, I think... You know, it's a matter of degree. If you have debtors that come in and, let's say, uh, 20 years ago, they bought a house and they raised their family in that house, and then they got some repairs done on the house. They put a new roof on it. They put a new floor on it. Now they have mortgage payments that exceed the IRS allowance. The bankruptcy judge could well find that that's reasonable under those circumstances and allow them to stay in the house. Can I ask you, has any other court of appeals agreed with this interpretation of the statute? Your Honor, I, I think, believe the answer is no. Well, I think that the the, the, the more accurate answer is none of the other courts of appeals have addressed this specific issue. Well, what what about um, the Sixth Circuit and the Ninth Circuit in Bald and Drummond? Thank you, Your Honor. In the Sixth Circuit, the issue was a little bit different. In, in both of those cases, the trustee basically conceded that the means test, as constructed, would allow this kind of uh, deduction. They didn't challenge whether the means test actually says that. In Sixth Circuit, what the trustee said was, well, yeah, I know that the means test allows this mortgage debt deduction, but the means test should really only be a starting point for the consideration of disposable income. What we should really look at is Schedule I. In other words, that trustee, and I don't agree with that trustee at all, said we don't care about the, the, the changes to the law. We don't care about the means test. We want to go back to the way it was. But but um, didn't the Ninth Circuit and Welch pretty much uh, nail down the argument against your position when they said that uh, disposable income, the calculation requires debtors to subtract their payments to secured creditors from their current monthly income. Congress did not see fit to limit or qualify the kinds of secured payments that are subtracted to reach a disposable income figure. Um, why, why would we then read into the statute, that little subsection 3, any limitation on secured debt when the statute itself in, in that subsection talking about secured debt makes no limitation. Well, Your Honor, first of all, I would say that in the Welsh case, again, the issue wasn't in front of the, the court specifically in that way. In the Welsh case, the trustee again said the means test allows this deduction, but to allow the debtor to take this deduction while paying this minuscule amount to his unsecured creditors, that's just not good faith. Well, that's not a good argument. I mean, I was a debtor's attorney for 20 years before I became a trustee, and that's an easy one to knock out of the park. If the code does actually allow for this deduction, how can it be bad faith to ding the de- I mean, how can it be bad faith for the debtor to actually step up and take the deduction to which he's allowed? So the trustee in that case argued the wrong thing. And I think in answer to your question, if you read all of the different clauses and subclauses around Clause 3, 
The wording is different, and it should mean something. In every single one of the other clauses, it talks about the debtor's allowable expenses. It doesn't talk about that in Clause 3. It, it basically just sets forth a formula for, for uh, calculating the amount of a secured debt. Whether or not that secured debt should be allowed should be considered in the totality of 707B. It should be considered as whether or not it would be an other necessary expense under the IRS's uh, definitions. Because in the IRS manual, again, you've got other necessary expenses and other conditional expenses. For an expense to be necessary, it has to be an expense that's reasonably necessary for the health and welfare of the debtor, or it has to be an expense that the debtor incurs in generating income. If it's not a necessary expense, it's a conditional expense, and there are a number of different examples. Congress, in its wisdom, decided that it was only going to allow deductions for other necessary expenses. Now, I think the question is, does each one of these separate little clauses and subclauses, are they standalone provisions that say um, you get this deduction in this amount? If it is, if each one of them stand alone, then I have to concede. Mr. Cook and the debtors win in this particular case. But I don't think that's a proper reading of it. I don't think that's consistent with the purpose of the means test. Uh, as explained in Ransom, where the court said the purpose of the means test is to make sure that creditor, uh, debtors who can pay their creditors do pay their creditors. There's also dicta in Ransom that specifically talks about, now, Ransom was about a case where the debtor had no car payment. But there's dicta in that case where the Supreme Court says if the car payment had been higher than the IRS allowance, the debtor would be limited not to the to the actual amount of the payment, the debtor would be limited to the IRS allowance. Now, it's dicta, but it's important dicta, and it's directly bearing on this. So I think what you have here is Clause 2, that deals with mortgage debts, at least debts that are secured by the debtor's primary mortgage, uh, primary residence. Then you have, in that same section, debts that are uh, dealing with the debtor's primary vehicle. If it's not one of those types of secured debts, then it's not dealt with under a national local standard. It's only dealt with as an other necessary expense. And if you read all of the 707B2 together and you say these kind of work together in concert with each other, then you have this way to calculate a secured debt, but it still has to meet the necessary expense category before the debtor is going to be allowed that. But even beyond that, have the problem that's that's really more with respect to other debts like the debtor buys an air conditioner right before he files bankruptcy is that going to be reasonable probably so uh, especially the deeper south you go you're going to need some air conditioning so that's going to be a reasonable debt and that's going to be an easier one to do but since 707b already specifically addresses the mortgage debt and it says you will get this specific amount the only way you can get more than that, it seems to me, is if you go to special circumstances. And that's provided for. You can go to court. When you say it specifically addresses the mortgage debt, what do you mean by that? Well, it, the uh, 707B2A21, the debtor's monthly expenses shall be the debtor's applicable monthly expense amounts specified under the national standards and the local standards. So the national, okay, so that... That, I thought so. That, that statute doesn't say your mortgage. It doesn't say on your primary residence. It refers you to these IRS forms, right? right. But the local standards include, uh, local standards are comprised of the uh, residence mortgage experience. Well, it has all kinds of things. So is I, am I correct that the, the principal purpose or the pre-existing purpose of those standards is for IRS purposes? It's for tax purposes? And that what the bankruptcy code is just doing is saying, you know, rather than re- 
So it turns out when people owe the government taxes, you have to figure out how much money they have to devote to taxes to other things. And not surprisingly, the IRS has a big interest in that. So they promulgate all these forms to figure out how much you owe the IRS in taxes. And then the bankruptcy code comes along and says, you know, we could calculate, we could create new standards. But it turns out the Treasury has already done these for tax purposes. So rather than reinvent the wheel, we'll just reference those. That's what the bankruptcy code basically does? That's basically what I think it does. Okay. Well, so that then it doesn't mean that every single thing that's in one of those IRS standards has to necessarily apply in bankruptcy. That's the link. I'm not sure that I understand. Well, I think, I think if you read all of 707B2 again, uh, all of the different sub-clauses of Clause 2 deal with expenses that are covered in the IRS's other expense category. So basically what Congress did, they said for each of these type of expenses, we don't need the bankruptcy court to judge those. Those are going to be reasonable expenses. But it deals with, if you go down that list, nowhere on that list does it uh, address a debt for the debtor's mortgage for the primary residence or for the primary vehicle. It doesn't have to because those are already specifically addressed in the national standard. And this court kind of came at it the other way in the Jackson v. Lynch case where the bankruptcy administrator for the Eastern District was arguing if the average mortgage payments are lower than the IRS standards, well, that's what the debtor should be able to deduct on the means test. And the court said, no, the statute doesn't say that. The statute says you get the amount specified. Why do you get the amount specified? But if the debtor doesn't like that amount, they can go over to the secured debt deduction, which under the IRS, and, and the Supreme Court has said, you can consult the IRS manual for interpretation of how these things should be applied in bankruptcy. Do you agree with me that the Lynch decision never expressly addresses whether or not mortgages are properly dealt with under Clause 2 or Clause 3? I mean, I agree that Lynch talks about Clause 2, but I don't see anything in Lynch where the court is actually dealing with an argument. And I think I went back and looked at the briefs, and I don't think anyone in Lynch in the briefs was arguing about whether it was Clause 2 versus Clause 3. I don't. I, don't, I think that's correct, Your Honor. Okay. Uh, I think that uh, there was no reason to get to the Clause 3 argument in that case because Clause 3, the average contractual payments, would have gotten you to the same place as uh, Clause 2, and that's not what the debtor wanted in that case. So I would absolutely agree with that. But I think if Congress takes the time and sets up and says, we're going to address the mortgage and the primary vehicle under this section, then there has to be some indication that Congress also meant to allow a spillover if the debtor didn't like that result. And again, I'm not saying that the debtor's going to lose their house. If the court were to vacate and remand back to the bankruptcy court, the bankruptcy court would have the opportunity to review this and say, well, under these circumstances, this is a reasonable expense or this is not a reasonable expense. And I think all of the, the kind of good faith arguments that this court has considered before would go into that. If the debtor's been in the house a long time, they raised their family there. I mean, frankly, I'm not even going to raise an objection in that case because just common sense says there's nothing wrong here. But the debtor who buys the house six months before and it's four times the IRS allowance, there should be some mechanism. And I think the code provides that mechanism for the bankruptcy judge to review that and see, is that reasonable under these circumstances? All right, thank you. You have some time in rebuttal. Mr. Cook? Good morning, judges, and may it please the court. My name is Richard Cook, and I represent the FLEs, Robert and Cheryl Cook. As the trustee pointed out, there is no relation. Quite I think that's what confused me in the beginning. The names are the same. It's quite the coincidence. Um, in 2005, Congress made very clear with passage of what I will refer to as BAPSIPA, the Bankruptcy Abuse Prevention and Consumer Protection Act. Under BAPSIPA, Congress 
intentionally, intentionally removed judicial discretion when determining whether or not a consumer debtor has the ability to repay their debts. In a Chapter 13 context, a means test was created. The means test mirrors a lot of Chapter 7, but looking to the Chapter 13 means test itself, you take the debtor's current monthly income and you subtract amounts reasonably necessary to be expended. And I'm putting those in quotes because it reads from the statute. And I'm going to read You're deducting expenses on the Chapter 13 means test. Amounts reasonably necessary to be expended shall be determined. Use of that word shall is very important. Shall be determined in accordance with subparagraphs A and B of Section 707B2. So this is where the Chapter 7 means test is incorporated through the Chapter 13 means test. But Congress was very explicit with the Chapter 13 means test that the amounts reasonably necessary to be expended if that amount shows up in the Chapter 7 means test, Congress has already said it's reasonable. There doesn't need to be a separate reasonableness determination. <coughs> Use of the word shall, as we know, mandates the statute must be followed. The courts lose discretion with use of the word shall. Turning to the Chapter 7 means test incorporated in Chapter 13, if you look at 707B2, we'll call it Clause under Clause 1, it says you can the, the current month that you deduct expenses that appear in Clauses 2, 3, and 4. It doesn't say just Clause 2 or just 3 or just 4. If it appears in any of those three buckets, you get to claim it. If you look at Clause 2, which is what the trustee is focused on with the IRS standards, halfway through that particular clause, it is crystal clear. It says, notwithstanding any other language in this section... This does not include debt payments. We don't. So we know Clause 2 has zero application when we're discussing mortgage payments because Congress has told us that. Again, it uses the word shall. If you look at the forms, if, if you turn to the joint appendix, you can see the official forms which debtors are required to use. There is, there is no choice here. You, know, you don't have, in some districts, you can use a different means test. No, no. The whole country uses these forms and they're required to by Rule 9009A of the Bankruptcy Rules. These official forms, you can see it in the Joint Appendix. Um, what level of deference do we owe to those forms? I mean, the forms don't have the status of positive law, so I guess in principle one of the forms could be inconsistent with the statute, right? Hypothetically, yes. What I can say, though, is Rule 9009C tells us we actually give the forms deference. We are to interpret the forms to be consistent with the relevant bankruptcy law. Well, that's not what you're doing here. You're asking us to conclude that the code means what the forms say, not that the forms mean what the code says. Well, I think, I think it's, it, they kind of tie into each other because I, I think they're one and the same. Because if you look at the specific example, if you look at um, Joint Appendix on page 68, so it's, it's paragraph 9 of the means test where it discusses the, the IRS standard for a housing expense. What it does is you, you list the IRS standard for your household size for a housing expense, but then you simultaneously deduct from that your actual mortgage expense. And so in a situation like here, we have zero. And so like it follows, the official form follows Clause 2 in that Clause 2 does not include debt payments. And so because this debt payment is larger than the IRS standard, we, don't, we actually don't have a deduction under Clause 2 here for the mortgage payment. 
And so I think that is a scenario where you see the forms mirror the statute. So where Clause 3 comes into play on the actual means test, and, and you see it in this case, uh, page 71 of the Joint Appendix, it's paragraph 33 of the means test that, that says, list your secured debt payments, secured by a mortgage, you know, your house debt, car debt, you list all of them. And there are no qualifiers. It doesn't say only the reasonable ones, only this, because we know because you look at Clause 3 itself, Clause 3 doesn't have any qualifiers. It says you shall calculate secure debt payments as the total of all contractual payments that come in the next 60 months, you divide it by 60. And that's exactly what was done here. So there's Can I just make sure that, it, so in the real world, the upshot of your position is, is that a debtor, a debtor who actually has a mortgage, you have to have a mortgage, right? That's the, the case about you, in order to deduct your car payment, you actually have to have a car payment. So a debtor who actually has a mortgage. Am I right that the practical upshot of your position gets the higher of their actual mortgage payment or the IRS guideline? Correct. In, in the easy, it's doing the math calculations going back to paragraph. Right, but at the end of the day, they're going to get to deduct the higher of those two numbers. Is that correct? And that's exactly what Judge Thacker wrote in Lynch versus Jackson: is you get the higher of the two. That's just that. That's just how the statutes are written. Is you get you don't punish frugal debtors. This is exactly what you said, Judge Thacker in Lynch versus Jackson. You don't punish somebody who's saving and frugal. But here you're going to punish these debtors because you know the whole point of BAPSIPA was those who can pay must pay. But wait, so that was true in Lynch. In Lynch, we weren't going to punish debtors who are frugal. We don't punish debtors who have a mortgage that's cheaper than the local average. But your friend on the other, I mean, the, the, the best practical argument I think they have is you're rewarding debtors who are profligate, right? So by definition, if you're in bankruptcy, you are someone who has more bills than income. That's what it sort of means to be bankrupt, right? And so under your rule, someone who took out a mortgage on a house that they absolutely positively could not afford the opposite of a frugal debtor, a profligate debtor, a house-poor debtor, gets to keep from their unsecured creditors the entire amount of their massive mortgage payment. I don't see how that's protecting frugal debtors. That seems like it's rewarding profligate debtors. Well, what I, what I can say, and this was touched on in the Ninth Circuit case in, in Welch, is that there would be an argument in that scenario of bad faith. You know, I, I think one of the cases they were referencing in the Ninth Circuit case was the debtors had a $5,000 mortgage payment, $5,000 a month mortgage payment. I think then we drift into to bad faith. But, I mean, I, I don't mean to sound callous like this, but it's, I mean, Congress makes these policy calls. Sure. Like, yeah. that, that's, you know, you say judges are here to call balls and strikes. You know, what did Congress write? Well, Congress wrote that judges can't make these decisions. They've tied these judges' hands. And part of that is, like, stability in the mortgage market. Like, you were pointing out during opening argument is, the, what's the recourse here? Like, what do we do then if, if, these clients here, the cooks, if they had to dedicate an extra $1,100 a month into a bankruptcy plan that they don't have, that's over and above their actual mortgage payment. So then are they going to have to triage then, okay, what are we letting go now? Do we have to let go of, well, the car we had to have, well, we're going to have to let that go, or we're going to have to let go of the house. So how do you promote stability in the mortgage market by requiring people to surrender their homes just to afford their bankruptcy repayment plans, even if they were current the mortgage when they filed, which is what we have here, even if there's no equity above exemption, which creditors can't touch, again, we have here, you're going to force people out of their houses to comply with, with a made-up test that Congress says you don't, you don't have to. Because going back to BAPS people was, if you have the ability to pay, you pay. But here, this isn't that case. Like, they're paying over and above the mortgage. Like, you're asking them to pay over. It's not like there's some savings sitting around here and we're gaming the means test. Could you just walk, you, could you just walk me through the code how that, that 
that example you gave of the debtor with a $5,000 mortgage, that would be bad faith. So how could a bankruptcy court, notwithstanding your view of BAPSIPA, get to the point of saying you can't actually make your $10,000 mortgage payment that you took out a month before you declared bankruptcy? How would it, under your understanding of how the statute works, how would, the, how would a bankruptcy court disavow that? Well, you'd have to turn to the initial provisions of 1325, which those are the requirements for confirmation. 1325, I think it's A3, is the plan has to be proposed in good faith. Um, if, if the debtors, and you see this in the, what we call Chapter 5 context of fraudulent conveyances, like if you are intentionally taking money and hiding it from your creditors, that's, that's a fraudulent transfer, that's a fraudulent transaction. And so these, these indicias of bad faith, you know, you've badges of fraud, things of that nature. So the court wouldn't allow you, to, the, way they, the way the court would do it is they wouldn't allow you to declare bankruptcy in those circumstances, or you but, couldn't confirm well, a plan. Well, it's not so much that. I guess you'd file, the procedural mechanics would be, file the case, there'd be the objection to confirmation, the judge would deny confirmation of that plan, and if the debtor can't come back with a confirmable plan, the case would be dismissed. Okay. And so it's not as though, I mean, hypothetically, the case could be converted to a Chapter 7 if that was in the best interest of creditors, to where if there was substantial equity, the house could be liquidated. Um, but it's, that's not a means test issue. That's more of a good faith issue. And, I mean, this is a scenario where, I mean, the particular county where my clients live is the second largest geographically in North Carolina. Like, they happen to live close to the beach. So are they punished for that? Because so, let's get into, if we go down this rabbit hole of reasonableness is now grafted onto the statute even when it's not there. So how do we, how do we approach this? So what, is this court then going to craft the reasonableness standard that we have to follow in these types of cases, because that's going to split with both the Sixth and the Ninth Circuit. So we're going to create a circuit split right there in and of itself. What do we do? What, what do we look at? Like the interest rate? Like did you, maybe your payment is too high and unreasonable because you had a bad interest rate. Well, maybe you had a bad interest rate because you defaulted on your credit cards and you couldn't refinance your mortgage. Like how do we do this? Like how, how does a debtor present this information to the court? And at what cost? Is there going to have to be a separate brief filed at confirmation showing the reasonableness why I get to stay in my house? If you're current with your mortgage payments and there's no equity above exemption, you keep your house in bankruptcy. And so, in, and especially in a Chapter 13, the debtor always stays in possession and control of their property. So you're having to justify staying in your own home. I, I don't understand that. So what if, what if it's a debtor who wanted to live in the best school district in the county? But that requires living in a more expensive house. They did that as an alternative to sending their kids to private school and maybe more. Where do we draw these lines? How do we, what does that look like? And, and again, if we start finding that your payment's not reasonable, do you have to leave the house? What, where else are you going to go? Do, do I then also have to show you what the rental market looks like for when I have to let my house go? Do I have to show you what else is on the market that I could be buying? The affordability with interest rates? Are we really going to micromanage people's lives to that extent? To determine where you get to live. Like, not only are you filing bankruptcy because you can't afford your debts, but you're filing bankruptcy to have a judge tell you where you get to sleep going forward. This is exactly what BAFSIPA didn't want. Like, we have to listen to Congress at some point when they say judicial discretion is being removed. Shall is being used all over these statutes. Because Congress has said, if we put it in the code, you follow that, that makes it reasonable. We've called it reasonable. And again, we know the Supreme Court has said on many occasions, we want stability in the mortgage market. You're not going to have stability in the mortgage market if there's a question of when you file bankruptcy. Even if you're current on your home, and there's no equity above exemption, you still might have to give it up. That's, that can't be what Congress intended. 
And so I additionally want to point out, if we go down this road of following the trustee here, how are we going to mark up the official forms in just the Fourth Circuit? We're going to say, well, you know, in the Fourth Circuit, these forms need to go ahead and say, there's a possibility of confirmation. You're going to have to justify the reasonableness of your mortgage expense. Because reasonable already appears in other places. Are we going to change these official forms just for the states in the Fourth Circuit? I mean, how's that going to look? How does that work in practice? It's just going to create too much confusion. Bankruptcy Rule 1001 says we need to interpret these rules for the just, expedient, and cost-effective determination of cases. This is going to do the exact opposite. Confirmation hearings today in a Chapter 13 case take place in about 15 seconds. Judge reads out a list of cases. Are there any objections to confirmation? No. We confirm the cases. What happens now is if this is an arrow the trustee can have in his quiver of like, you've got to show me that this mortgage payment is reasonable, we're going to be having half-hour, hour, two-hour confirmation hearings per case. So when you have a calendar with 15 cases, we're going to be here all day. We're going to be here until tomorrow. So what judicial resources are we going to waste on this reasonable determination when Congress has said we don't have to have this reasonableness determination? It has to mean something if in Clause 2 the word necessary appears seven times. You see it seven times. Necessary. I'm sorry, reasonable. The word reasonable appears seven times in Clause 2. It doesn't appear once in Clause 3, and Clause 3 is what lets you deduct the mortgage payment. If you have the payment, you're good. And we know Hamilton v. Lane, you actually have to have the payment. If you surrender the property, you can't deduct the secured payment. But if you're keeping the property and you're going to keep making the payments, you can deduct the whole payment on the means test. And so in closing, the plain language of these statutes could not be more crystal clear. Shall means shall. It removes judicial discretion. Both the Sixth Circuit and the Ninth Circuit were correct on this issue. The Supreme Court in Ransom v. FIA Card Services in 2010 was also crystal clear. FAPSIPA has taken discretion away from bankruptcy judges in favor of a bright-line test. Sometimes that bright-line test may end up with some results we don't like. That's not our job to address the propriety of that. Public policy concerns are going to be addressed by Congress. Pelley's ask that the lower court, the bankruptcy court, be affirmed. I'm open to any other questions. All right. No other questions. Thank you. And we'll hear again from Mr. Bledsoe. Why don't you tell us why shall does not mean shall? Why doesn't it mean shall in Clause 3? Thank you. 
debtor's going to get that $1,000 a month. The question is, if it's $2,000 or if it's $3,000. And I disagree that that was something that you could challenge on the good faith argument because, again, if the debtor's doing what the code allows them to do, that can't be bad faith. If the code specifically allows this deduction, it doesn't matter if it's $10,000 a month. You may object on feasibility. The debtor can't make the payment, but he can object on good faith because that's what the code says you can do. That's like saying, well, my tax liability is $5,000, but it's bad faith if I don't pay $10,000 just because I have the ability to. Well, that's not the way that works. If the code allows you to do what the code wants, I think the reasonableness is appropriate to question. I think that you question it because the mortgage debt is under Clause 2. I think Clause 3 just says, again, it just says this is how you calculate secured debts. And then it's the overall scheme of things. We know that this was that All right, thank you for your argument. We'll come down and greet counsel and then hear our last case.